Well, good morning. My name's Matt. It's great to be with you this morning. If you've got one of the visitor Bibles, um, let me encourage you to turn it open to um, Acts chapter 17. We'll be picking up the passage at Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and you can find that on page 926 of the visitor Bibles. Now, while you're looking that up, Mark Twain famously advised writers to write about what they know. Um, And so in that spirit, I'm going to preach about what I know, um, or at least what I know a little bit better than I did a few years ago. Um, As most of you know, in 2018, my family moved to Edinburgh so that I could undertake postgraduate study at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. And for much of that time, I've been researching what we know as the doctrine of participation. Now, after the Bible reading, I'm going to explain exactly what I mean by participation. But the reading itself gives us a good uh, introduction to what that doctrine involves. Um, The book of Acts is all about Jesus. It's all about um, how Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, continued to work in the world by his word and by his spirit. And over the course of the book of Acts, the good news of the gospel, that the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, are available to those who repent from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, that message spread from Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And one of the missionaries who features very heavily in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was a convert to Christianity from Judaism, but he was also a Roman citizen. Now, during Paul's lifetime, the Roman Empire controlled much of the known political world in the political sense. But at the same time, the Roman people um, deeply admired and heavily borrowed from Greek intellectual life. And so while the city of Rome was the heart of the empire in a political sense, the city of Athens was the heart of the empire in an intellectual sense. And so the Apostle Paul finds himself in Acts chapter 17 um, accepting, correcting and rejecting various aspects of Jewish, Roman and Greek culture as he seeks to share the gospel. Now, the book of Acts uh, records three of Paul's missionary journeys. From the end of chapter 15 through to the end of chapter 18, Paul can be found on his second missionary journey. And we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, that while he was in modern-day Turkey, Paul had a vision that he should go and preach to Macedonia, a country between Turkey and Greece. Now, after a hostile reception in the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica, Paul found a friendlier reception at Berea, But Jewish opponents from Thessalonica nonetheless chased him out of Macedonia entirely. And so Paul um, briefly took refuge in the nearby city of Athens. And he waited there for his missionary co-workers, Timothy and Silas, to join him so that they could continue their mission. And that's where we pick up the reading today. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. For then being God's offspring, we not ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So here we see a brief but nonetheless substantial articulation of what we call the doctrine of participation. If you have a look at verses 24 to 31, you can see highlights of this doctrine. Um, so in verse 24, we see that God created the world. Um, in verse 25, we see that God sustains the world. In verse 26, we see that God rules the world. And jumping to the end in verse 31, we read that God will one day judge the world. In each of these ways, in creating, sustaining, ruling and judging, God is intimately involved in the affairs of his world. At the same time, God's creatures are utterly dependent on him. God's creatures depend on him in everything. And it is this relationship of dependence between God and his creatures that we call the doctrine of participation. So there are three elements to the doctrine. You have God who dwells in a supernatural or transcendent realm. You have creatures who dwell below in the imminent realm. And then you have a relationship of dependence between them. Now, most church historians today um, argue that the doctrine of participation is a characteristically Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, and allegedly, Protestants contributed to the loss of this doctrine. And the result is the modern and secular world that we know today. So the problems of modern society, including rampant secularism and atheism, the pressure to exclude faith and people of faith from the public sphere, and the view that religion is not just weird, but even dangerous and harmful, Allegedly, that's come about um, mostly due to Protestants who've set aside the doctrine of participation. Now, the reason most historians think that is because most historians are Roman Catholics. Evangelicals don't tend to do church history because they're more focused on the present and the future and preaching the gospel. So you can imagine I have big problems with this thesis, and my research is directed towards um, attacking that thesis and uh, reconstructing it. Because... The doctrine of participation is a key part of what we believe and what we preach. As Protestants, we believe that we depend on God for
for everything, for life and health and happiness. And in fact, we can participate in salvation only because um, of the doctrine of participation, because God unites himself to us, to his son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. It is that spiritual union or that participation in Christ which makes possible our justification and our sanctification. So without the doctrine of participation in Christ by the Holy Spirit, we can't be saved. So in the time remaining, what I want to do is use the Bible passage that we've just read to articulate articulate exactly what participation involves, what it does not involve, that is certain pitfalls that we should avoid, and finally how we put this doctrine into practice. So let's go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 16. And we see that when Paul was in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him by what he saw. Now, most people who visit Athens, whether then or now, would have been captivated by the beauty and the brilliance of the city. Not Paul. He was deeply distressed because he saw that the city was full of idols. And so we read in verse 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, we know um, from earlier in this chapter, from verse 2, that it was Paul's regular custom in whatever city that he entered to reason with Jewish people in the synagogues on the Sabbath. The additional detail we're given here is that not just on the Sabbath, but every day he would go into the marketplace to reason with whomever he could find. And the reason that's significant is because the marketplace was the hub of urban life. It was not only the centre for commerce and trade, but also the place for sharing ideas. And in verse 18, we see um, that he had two conversation partners, um, people called Epicureans and Stoics. Now, Epicureans were people who believed that the gods, insofar as they existed, had no interest in or influence on human affairs. The world as we know it only exists by chance, and there's nothing after death, neither judgment nor life. So the Epicureans were famous for the pursuit of happiness as an end in itself. They were famous for the phrase, let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Stoics were very different. The Stoics believed that not only were the gods intimately involved in human affairs, but actually that the divine nature permeated everything. And so instead of being ruled by chance, the Stoics believed that everything was ruled by fate. They were fatalists. Now, the Stoics made it their goal to live in harmony with the divine, and the best way they saw to do that was to kind of purge themselves of feelings and emotions. So, in many respects, they were the opposite of the Epicureans. But they did have one important belief in common. They both rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. So, while the Epicureans believed that there's no pie in the sky when you die, the Stoics believed that When you die, your spirit leaves the body because the body is bad. So both of them, in their own ways, rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. So in verse 19, um, it says that after they met him, the Epicureans and the Stoics took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So they, they take him to a place to thrash things out, And the Areopagus, um, it literally means Mars Hill, um, and it's probably um, a place near the Acropolis in Athens, and it's where the leading minds of the city would meet to have discussions and debate things and make decisions about the life of the city. 
And in Paul's subsequent speech, he not only outlines the doctrine of participation, but he also is careful to protect himself from three pitfalls or problems which can arise when the doctrine is misunderstood. And these three pitfalls you can see in your outline. Paganism, pantheism and Pelagianism. So we'll talk about each of those now. The first pitfall that Paul avoids is paganism. And there are two aspects of paganism which Paul addresses. Idolatry and ignorance. Paul isn't content to see the city's idols go unchallenged. Now ironically, Paul uses the city's plethora of idols and the obvious uh, religiosity of the Athenians as a springboard to challenge those very same idols. And he does this by honing in um, on an idol to an unknown god and filling out the content in terms of the God of the Bible. Now, in a nutshell, idolatry involves giving to something or someone the worship that's due to God alone. And idolatry um, cuts across the doctrine of participation because idolatry tries to minimize the distance between Creator and His creatures in order to bring God under our control. Now, we modern people need to be careful um, that we don't imagine that idolatry is a problem of only primitive or superstitious people. Um, Idolatry can take a number of forms, both intellectually, with false ideas about God, and practically, with the worship of created things rather than um, the Creator. John Calvin is famous for his saying that the human mind is, so to speak, a a perpetual factory of idols, and that idea has been made um, popular recently by Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Um, where he addresses the more abstract but nonetheless real dangers of idols like money and sex and power. And Keller um, helpfully says to us that we can idolise something when we take a good thing and make it a God thing. So while we might not worship little statues, while we might not be surrounded by temples, we're still tempted by idols. Um, And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we idolising? Is it sex? Is it money or power? Um, Is it career? Is it even family? Um, It's surprising when I worked as a church minister in Australia, the number of times, um, particularly dads, would say to me, um, our family's not going to church today because we want to have more family time and I want to invest in family. Interestingly, it was never mums who said that, it was only dads who said that. But... Many times, even though they imagined church and family as some kind of trade-off, both would end up losing. So we need to be careful of idolizing things that are even really good things in and of themselves and be careful of making them God things. The second aspect of paganism which Paul addresses is ignorance. Not only does Paul specifically address their worship of an unknown God, he also calls out their ignorance in verse 23 when he says that you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. Now, Paul is walking a very fine line here. On the one hand, ignorance of God is clearly not a good thing. It's something that the people of Athens are actually culpable or blameworthy for, because Paul expects his audience to know about God. They ought to know that God creates and sustains and rules and judges, and that's even without having the Bible. And interestingly, Paul uses two quotes from pagan poets to make his point in verse 28. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Um, This was a quote from a philosopher called Epimenides. And this quote was originally attributed to Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. 
The second quote, also in verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring, is also attributed to Zeus by a Stoic poet, Aratus. So what Paul is doing is actually using the texts and authorities of his opponents against them. The Athenians are ignorant about God, but even from their very own texts, they shouldn't be. No one on the planet should be ignorant about God because his eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen from what has been made. So ignorance is not a good thing. But on the other hand, not every kind of knowledge is good either. Have a look back at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Not all kinds of knowledge are good. Bad knowledge is knowledge that doesn't have any practical use. It's purely speculative, and an exercise in thinking for its own sake, for the titillation of the mind, but it doesn't make any practical difference to your life. And so as Christians, we need to avoid those two extremes of, one, resting in our ignorance about God, um, especially when truth about God is readily available, not just in creation, but especially in the Bible, or on the other hand, exploring esoteric topics which don't directly facilitate the growth of the individual or the church or the progress in our mission. The second pitfall that Paul wants to avoid is pantheism. Um, pantheism, it's, it literally means all is God. It's the false idea that all is God. And this is one of the beliefs of the Stoics. Um, and so when all is God, it's not just that creatures depend on God, God actually depends on creatures because they're interconnected. And the problem with that is that um, we introduce creaturely imperfection into God, and actually that means he's not really God. So um, on its own terms, pantheism doesn't work. And Paul declares that the relationship between God and creatures, even though it's one of dependence, there is an asymmetry there. We depend on God, he doesn't depend on us. And that's the burden of Paul's comments in verses 24 and 25, where he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then in verse 29 he says, Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So in all of those cases, in verses 24, 25, and 29, there is a confusion between God and a location or an image that humans have made. Just because God is in his creation, at work, in a spiritual and a personal sense, at the same time he is still distinct from us and transcendent above us. God is God and we are not. And that was a particular mistake of the Stoics. The third pitfall that Paul wants to avoid, and this is a bit more subtle, but it's a pitfall called Pelagianism. Pelagianism, um, it's named by, after a British monk. Um, sadly, um, he didn't do us very much credit. This guy, Pelagius, said that people can basically achieve salvation by being good people. They're not affected by sin in any way. Um, and they can just choose to be good and earn eternal life. Now, the subtext of Paul's message is that we do stand under sin. We stand under condemnation because of our sin, which is why in verse 30 and 31 he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Now the Stoics in particular were kind of like early Pelagians. They thought that by living in accordance with the divine nature in the world, under their own power, that they could attain the redemption of their souls from their mortal bodies. And Paul is clear that um, apart from turning away from sin and apart from seeking God's forgiveness for worshipping false idols, for being ignorant of the truth about him, that we can expect nothing but judgment. In fact, even our repentance and faith is a sovereign work of God because nothing happens in this world outside of God's control. Notice back in verse 26 that Paul says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here Paul is saying that nothing in human history happens apart from God's control. And that includes our salvation. Now, of course, God is entirely good and perfect, so he can't be held responsible for the tyranny and the evil which occurs in our world. Yet all of the events of human history ultimately occur under his control. And that includes our decision to put our trust in him. So to summarize these pitfalls that Paul avoids, Paul undergirds his preaching of the gospel and his call to repent and believe with a clear articulation um, of the doctrine of participation. We depend on God for everything, but he does not depend on us for anything. And in doing so, he avoids the pitfall of uh, pagan worship, which is both idolatrous and ignorant, a pantheistic confusion of God with his creation, and the Pelagian belief that we can be saved under our own power. So let's um, finish up by thinking about the payoff of this passage, about how we can apply these truths to our lives. Those who argue that all the problems of the modern world would be fixed if we just recover the doctrine of participation, a doctrine that apparently Protestants helped to get rid of, they point out that a strong doctrine of participation can help inoculate people against atheism and agnosticism that it can encourage people that they don't have to leave behind their personal faith when they engage with public life. And it can encourage people to see faith in God as a normal and natural part of life instead of deviant and dangerous. Now, all of that's true, but what I want to focus on here is how Paul uses the doctrine of participation to support his preaching of the gospel, because that's the main burden of this passage here. And there are four points that I want to bring out um, I've caught the alliteration bug, so they all start with M. The motive for sharing the gospel, the message of the gospel itself, the manner of sharing the gospel, and the means of sharing the gospel. So firstly, the motive for sharing the gospel. For many of us, anxiety, fear, or even just inertia can prevent us from sharing the gospel with our friends, our family, and colleagues. But I want you to notice what moved Paul beyond fear or even inertia. Because he could have just sat tight and waited until he was called back to Macedonia. He didn't. Notice what moved Paul. Have a look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, he wasn't moved to share the gospel for his own sake or even for the sake of the Athenians. He was moved to share the gospel because he was jealous for God's name. Paul's inward pain and horror at the Athenians' idolatry 
moved him to share the gospel. Because whenever God God is denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. That's why our Lord teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Because it's something that we can be strangely insensitive to, God's name being profaned in the world. But notice that Paul is zealous to share the gospel, not just for his own sake or even for the sake of his audience, but especially for the sake of seeing God worshipped and honoured. Secondly, the message of the gospel itself. It's remarkable that in declaring that God is our creator, sustainer, ruler and judge, that Paul should appeal to two pagan poets. This precedent gives us warrant to do the same and indicates that glimmers of truth and insights from general revelation can be found in non-Christian sources. Now, at the same time, Paul uses revelation to control and correct what's found in general revelation. In particular, Paul declares that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, even though that was an obvious point of contention with the Epicureans and the Stoics, he doesn't shy away from declaring the truth from Scripture that Jesus rose from the dead. He meets them square on. And in declaring that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul gestures toward the central truth of the gospel, that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he died for us on the cross. So you see, um, it's subtle, but he does bring his hearers to the cross. And it should always be our goal to bring our hearers to the cross. Because in the cross, we both see our need for forgiveness, and we also find the forgiveness that we need. Only the cross does that. Thirdly, we see something about the manner of declaring the gospel. The manner. Paul reacts to the Athenians' idolatry in a negative way, with horror and dismay. However, he also responds positively and constructively. He makes an effort to connect with his hearers. He corrects their misconceptions. He converses with their philosophical framework. He confronts them with their need for repentance. He convicts them of the truth that Christ was raised from the dead. So while he was tearing down falsehood, he was also building up truth. And finally, there is the means of declaring the gospel. The Athenians needed to hear the gospel from someone. Now, sometimes Paul preached to relatively simple folk, like the people of Lystra in Acts chapter 14. But here, Paul finds himself speaking to the intellectual cream of the crop. And he was able to do this in God's providence because of his training as a Roman citizen, as a Jewish Pharisee, and as a Christian apostle. And today, we still need people who can share Jesus with people from all walks of life. We need people who can engage with lecturers and authors and journalists and artists and photographers and actors and all kinds of people who need to hear the gospel. So we need to be careful of the temptation to just cloister ourselves in our own Christian communities and be afraid of entering into professions and areas of life where there are a few Christians. Those are the people who need to hear the message of Jesus the most. So we should think seriously about taking up vocations which are underserved by Christians for the express purpose of making Jesus known. So to conclude, Paul has a deeply participationist worldview. He believes that God is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. God creates, sustains, rules and judges. At the same time, Paul very deftly steers clear of three pitfalls of pagan idolatry and ignorance 
of the pantheist confusion of God and his creation and the Pelagian belief that God is neutral towards us and that we can be saved under our own power. Now, Paul's motivated to preach the gospel, not for his own sake or even for the sake of his hearers, but because of the sake of God's holy name. And he doesn't compromise on the message of Jesus that he died and rose again for us. But nonetheless, he shares the gospel in a positive, constructive way. So what about you? Do you live as if God is irrelevant or doesn't exist? Do you worship the things that God has made instead of the, thing, the, the one who made them? Have you been suppressing the truth about God? Do you think that you can live in this world or the world to come under your own strength? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you need to know that God is the creator and ruler and judge and that God alone is worthy of your worship and that it's a dreadful mistake to direct our worship at the things that God has made and that you can't claim ignorance if you do it. More than that, you need to know as the scriptures clearly proclaim, that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die and rise for you, to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be made right with God. Now, if you truly believe this, if you truly believe that God is God and we are not, and that we utterly depend on him for everything, then you ought to be jealous to see his name honoured, to see as many people as possible worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's only possible if people know the truth about what Jesus has done for them in the first place. So let's, like Paul, be eager to share Jesus with our family and friends and colleagues, not for our sake, not even for their sake, but for the sake of God's holy name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, In you we live and move and have our being. We are your offspring. You are our creator, sustainer, ruler and judge. We depend on you for everything. You are God and we are not. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in creation, but especially in the scriptures. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die and rise for us so that we could be forgiven our sins and look forward to a bodily resurrection after which we will enjoy an eternity in heaven with you. Help us to share the good news of the gospel with others, so that as many people as possible might worship you and receive forgiveness and eternal life, not just for our sake, not even for their sake, but ultimately for the sake of your holy name. Amen.